my lords, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Your Excellency, colleagues and friends, um, it's a great honour to be asked to uh, give this lecture, uh, and I'm extremely grateful to uh, the Ambassador and, his, uh, and Frau Baumgarten for their hospitality this evening. I'm not quite sure how grateful I am to Herr Gestrich, because after a build-up like that, I, I rather fear you, you're going to be disappointed. Um, nevertheless, I shall, I shall do my best. Um, this, uh, this, too, this subject of particularly how the British have perceived or misperceived Germans is something, obviously, as a British person who's been working for many years on modern German history, I've been interested in throughout my career. Um, but as you see, uh, in um, the early 1990s, it became suddenly um, a, a, a topic of immediate and burning interest. Um, now, I think the question to ask really at the end of the first decade of the 21st century, the question is, is Britain still obsessed with the Second World War? And more than 60 years after the end of hostilities between Britain and Germany in 1939, we have to ask whether the British still think of the Germans as the enemy. Are the British luxuriating in a nostalgic recollection of 1939 to 45 as the finest hour in their history? Does the notorious reluctance of Britain to play a full part, a positive part, in the process of European Union reflect an inability to think of the continent as anything but territory occupied in one way or another by a hostile power. Well, a number of German commentators certainly thought that the answer to all these questions should be yes. A few years ago, the then German Minister of Culture, Michael Naumann, bemoaned what he called the almost grotesque terms in which the British press portrayed Germany. He wondered, I quote, whether the picture of Germany should remain forever ensconced and embalmed in the myths and phrases of World War II in Britain. The then German ambassador in London, Gebhard von Moltke, later the same year, complained that British attitudes towards the Germans were still embedded in wartime stereotypes. Teaching about Germany in British schools, he regretted, seemed to stop in 1945. And next it was a turn of the British ambassador to Germany, Sir Paul Neva, who noted that the British press persisted in a portrayal of Germany, he said, that's rather dominated by vocabulary from the war and rather permeated by a feeling that somehow Britain is under threat. When Moltke's successor as ambassador, Thomas Matuzek, went on a tour of Britain focusing particularly on schools to try and change perceptions of Germany for the better, since, as he observed, it has deteriorated radically, had deteriorated radically since the last time it served in London in the 1970s. Such comparisons didn't meet with universal agreement. The then Deputy Director of the Goethe Institute in London dismissed the ambassador's views as too sweeping. There were many cultural exchanges between the two countries, he said. British teenagers studying German did learn a great deal about Germany since 1945. It was true, he admitted, that ten times more German students visited the UK on average uh, on in a year in exchanges than British students travelling the other way. But even the Germans, he said, didn't find Germany very interesting as a tourist destination. <laughs> Interestingly, too, when British school children reported on exchange visits to schools on the continent, the majority of those who went to Germany came back with more positive opinion of the Germans. 
while most of those who went to France came back with a more negative image. <laughs> this, before we start generalising about national character, may well have been the product, of course, of differing expectations. Nevertheless, German children in British schools in the 1990s, in the early years of this century, frequently had to put up with being called Nazis, or even with being physically attacked. A visiting group of German high school students was reportedly greeted with a hail of stones and water bombs in Cornwall, thrown by local children who shouted Nazi at them and were apparently egged on by their parents in one notorious incident. Well, such behaviour obviously was not widespread, but there were no reports of similar attacks on visiting school students from other countries, nor were the attitudes such behaviour might have reflected universally shared, not even in the popular press. The Sun newspaper insisted on the 16th of March 2000 in its coverage of the takeover of Rover cars, makers of the Mini by BMW, that we won't join anyone tempted to go in for German bashing and declared the old-fashioned war-related jibes at the Germans are counterproductive. But the force of this view was somewhat undermined by the story carried on the opposite page of the same edition. This is a brief biography of Johanna Quandt, the driving force behind BMW for half a century. Motor industry make insiders, said the Sun, are convinced the final decision to dump Rover was hers. And it was accompanied by a picture entitled Nazi Past. Johanna's mum-in-law Magda with second hubby Goebbels and Hitler. Addressing the Anglo-German Königswinter Conference, Tony Blair predictably tried to spin the problem out of existence by declaring that Anglo-German relations had never been better. But the German Chancellor, Gerd Schröder, was nonetheless moved to complain about the negative stereotypes of the Germans pervading parts of the British press. And sometime some years later, in 2005, his foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, added that the British press still pervade a goose-stepping image of Germany, he said, and the Germans that was three generations out of date. Such outdated images are arguably much less prevalent when it comes to British media and popular stereotypes of, say, the French, the Italians or the Russians, which generally have very little to do with the Second World War. So why do they in the case of Germany? To this, German commentators have given a variety of answers. They've dated the negative stereotype in Britain of the Germans variously to the end of the 19th century, as the German economy began to overhaul its British counterpart, to the First World War with its anti-German hysteria, the destruction of German shops by patriotic rioters in British cities, the royal house of Sachsen Kurbergorte changing its name to Windsor, and Dachshund stoned by irate Englishmen on the streets of London, or, most commonly of all, they date it to the Second World War and its lingering, still powerful memory, 70 years on. <coughs> Thus, Lothar Kettenacker, deputy director for many years at the German Historical Institute in London, thought in 1991 that England lived in a kind of wax museum where the timeless stereotype of the Germans as evil militarists was on permanent exhibi exhibition for the edification of the general public. The German journalist Thomas Kielinger, commissioned in 1997 jointly by the foreign offices of Britain and Germany to produce a popular booklet aimed at reducing mutual suspicion between the two nations, 
could not help observing in his conclusion that, quote, in the case of the UK, insularity has produced a national frame of mind that defies attempts to impose rapid change, including, of course, changes in the stereotypes of other people to make them fit more closely with changing values. A more complex explanation was offered in 1992 by the German historian Günther Heidemann, who took the view that the British wallowed in nostalgic memories of the Second World War in order to conceal from themselves the painful fact that Britain had sunk from being a world power to the status of a middle-ranking European state, and that the structural deficits of the British economy and society, like industrial decline, poor education, class barriers and the like, were obviously impossible to overcome. Germany had become the object of envy and hatred on the part of the British, he said, because Britain had won the war, but Germany had won the peace. Now, the anger and bewilderment that were apparent uh, in the 1990s and for uh, the early years of this decade, and so many Germans' comments on the negative nature of British attitudes towards them, <clears throat> were particularly evident, I think, in Heidemann's case. Even more so, indeed, in the more recent book produced by the brother of uh, Ambassador Matuzek about the British. But one set of national stereotypes, I think, is hardly best explained by simply articulating another. What's wrong about all these accounts is their assumption that the British attitudes to the Germans are rooted in a relatively, on the case of Keelinger's references to British insularity, really remote past. But public memory is not something that endures unchanged from generation to generation. It's constantly being reinvented. Some German commentators <clears throat> have expressed puzzlement that British wartime stereotypes have not declined in influence as the wartime generation has begun to pass from the scene. But in the immediate aftermath of the war, in fact, such a fading did take place. In 1947, a Gallup poll showed that 42% of the British felt positively towards the Germans. By 1969, positive attitudes were found in 68% of those polled. Those who thought there was a good chance of Nazism becoming powerful in Germany again fell from 40% in 1954 to 31% in 1969. In 1967, some 48% thought German reunification was a good idea. Asked to choose between France and Germany as the main ally of Britain, 49% chose Germany, 22% France. <coughs> British attitudes were also softened in this post-war period by numerous efforts aimed at mutual reconciliation, including, for example, a successful partnership scheme between the cities of Coventry and Dresden. This is symbolised by an exchange of state visits between the German president in 1958 and Queen Elizabeth II in 1965, widely portrayed in the British press as drawing a line under the past. Only the Beaverbrook press remained critical, steered by Lord Beaverbrook, still in the 1950s an enthusiast for empire and hostile to um, Germany. It was arguably not very representative of wider public opinion. True, in reporting a reception given to the German president, Herr de Hoist, by the Queen in 1958 during his state visit, the Daily Express noted 
Hoover book paper, noted that a number of those present had refused to stand and raise their glasses to the German head of state. But the impact of this report was somewhat diminished when rival newspapers pointed out that the only three men, only three men, in fact, insulted the guest of honour in this uh, way, and all three of them had been journalists employed by the Beaver Book Press and acting under instructions from its owner. And even the Daily Express, while criticising the Queen's hobnobbing with middle-aged and elderly Germans on these two state visits, quote, the same people who held a dagger to our throats 25 years ago, saw nothing wrong with the younger generation of Germans who, it made clear, should not be held responsible for the sins of their fathers and grandfathers. The dominant stereotype of the Germans as Nazis faded as it became gradually clear that West Germany, at least, had succeeded in establishing a stable and peaceful democratic state. Sympathy was increased by the media portrayal of the human suffering caused by the Berlin blockade of 1948, and admiration for the plucky spirit of West Berliners, and then in even larger measure by the many human tragedies that accompanied the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961. <clears throat> if British politicians appealed to the myth of the Second World War at all, it was, in generalised terms, of the Dunkirk spirit, pluckiness and adversity, frequently uh, invocated by Harold Wilson, for example, rather than in hostility towards the former enemy, or in an allergic reaction to an appeasement, even if it's most disastrous in the Suez crisis of 1956. During this period, 1950s, 60s, public memory of the Second World War continued to play a role in British culture. But the portrayal of the Germans in the British cinema of the day was neutral rather than hostile. Germans indeed were marginal to the main concern of films like The Wooden Horse, Reach for the Sky, Hill Met by Moonlight, Danger Within, Sink the Bismarck and so on, which um, the, the main concern of such films is really, I think, to portray the British officer class in a heroic light as heroes of the stiff upper lip, providing a cultural bulwark, or at least attempting to, against the growing pressure of consumerism, social equality, social reform, which found its expression in the coming to power of the Labour Party in 1964. German officers were portrayed in general in such films, and also in the military histories of the day, written by men such as Basil Little Hart, as fundamentally decent, if strict and unbending, soldiers, who had nothing much to do with Nazism. It's reflected, I think, among other things, the British experience of the war in North Africa and the Western Front, a very different kind of war from the exterminatory conflict fought out in the East, about which very little was said in the years of the Cold War. In a sense, the German officer was seen to have Prussian virtues that provided a sort of sterner counterpart to the British virtues that the films of the 50s and early 60s tried to celebrate. And of course it's against this myth that the British television portrayal of the war in series like Dad's Army from 1968 to 77 and the famous Don't Mention the War episode of Forty Towers in 1975 have to be understood. Contrary to what many Germans thought and perhaps still think, these were not exercises in anti-German nostalgia, rather satires on the attitudes portrayed in the films of the 50s and early 60s. Germans indeed in Dad's Army were almost always the absent enemy. They appeared in only two episodes in the whole run 
of the series. In one of them, a German, a paratrooper, caught on the church tower of Warmington-on-Sea, was portrayed sympathetically. The only other episode to feature Germans involved a captured submarine crew assigned to Captain Mannering and his squad to guard, which they did with a predictable lack of success. <laughs> the Germans in Basel Forty's hotel were shown as normal, peaceful guests, in sharp contrast to most of the British people who frequented the establishment. <laughs> they were justifiably upset by Basil's inability forget, to forget the war and by his behaviour, which itself was not a consequence even of his normally mildly deranged state of mind, but of a concussion, you'll remember if you recall the episode, a concussion he'd suffered by being hit by a stuffed moose head early in the episode. <laughs> Finally, in the 1970s and 80s, British portrayals of Germany on television moved away from the Second World War towards contemporary themes, as in Auf Wiedersehen Pet, while German films on the war, such as Das Boot, were not only broadcast on German TV, uh, British TV, but also achieved astonishingly high ratings, 7 million viewers for Das Boot, uh, for foreign language subtitle programmes. The contemporary focus of British attitudes towards Germany in the 70s and 80s was influenced, I think, not least by the importance of a positive stereotype of the Germans. Efficient, hard-working, well-organised, economically successful, highly educated, as a mirror to the British disease of economic inefficiency, low productivity and poor educational standards, which all sides in politics agreed was a growing problem during the deepening British debate on the decline of Britain during these decades. And correspondingly, German politicians like Philippe Prandt and Helmut Schmidt were only widely known in Britain, they were also widely respected. Forschpungdurch Technik could be said to be the watchword of this phase of British portrayals of the Germans as it appeared untranslated on widely broadcast TV advertisements for Audi cars. But in 1989-90, all this changed. The immediate was German reunification. Prime Minister Thatcher was strongly opposed on a number of grounds. She belonged to a generation that had personal experience of the war and which opinion polls indicated was the only segment of British public opinion that regarded German reunification as a threat to peace. She was alarmed at what she saw as the damage to British standing in the world which she thought would ensue from the end of full power control in Germany. She was affronted by the way in which the Americans, under President Bush, began to speak of a new special relationship between the USA and Germany, rather than the UK, and by the way in which the international negotiation of reunification largely bypassed Britain, although this factor was mainly a consequence of her own determination to obstruct and slow down the process in the first place. Finally, she was insulted <coughs> by the fact that Chancellor Kohl issued his decisive ten-point plan for reunification without informing the British government, which had, that, uh, had ensured, assured only ten days previously that he didn't regard reunification as a practical possibility. The rumour that she felt even more insulted when Chancellor Kohl called off a joint meeting with a plea of a previous engagement uh, while they were both in Salzburg, only for her to spot him later in a cafe eating an enormous Austrian cream cake on his own, <laughs> turned out not to be true. But there was a kind of symbolic truth in it, perhaps even more than one symbolic truth. And certainly, personal relations between two conservative leaders, as this cartoon illustrates, were far from cordial. At this point, Mrs. Thatcher turned to historians for advice. A group of experts 
on the German past, including Gordon Craig, Fritz Stern, Hugh Trevor Roper, Norman Stone and Timothy Gardner-Ash. All people, I think, regarded by rightly or wrongly by uh, the um, and by number 10, as of sound conservative instincts, was summoned to Chequers for a day-long seminar on the German character, which the minutes, written by the Prime Minister's foreign policy advisor, Charles Pohl, described as... I've got a cartoon here. Described as, quote, insensitivity to the feelings of others, their obsession with themselves, a strong inclination to self-pity, and a longing to be liked... Some even less flattering attributes than minutes continued were also mentioned as an abiding part of the German character. In alphabetical order, angst, aggressiveness, assertiveness, bullying, egoism, inferiority complex, sentimentality. These character traits, Paul explained, had manifested themselves in the past and were likely to recur in the future. The way in which the Germans currently used their elbows and threw their weight about in the European community, the minutes continued suggested that a lot had still not changed. This list indicated not only Pearl's inability to put words in alphabetical order, because aggressiveness, of course, comes before angst and not after it, <laughs> but also his tendency to record the words of his boss rather than those whom she was supposedly asking for advice. When the minutes, which are supposed to be extremely confidential, were leaked to the press, the participants in the meeting, or most of them, rushed into print to explain with various de- varying degrees of candour that the views they, uh, which the minutes expressed had not been theirs, but Mrs Thatcher. Her views. For all the effects it had on her thinking, the meeting might well have not have taken place at all. The leak occurred in July 1990, shortly after the publication in The Spectator, of a sensational interview with Mrs Thatcher's favourite minister, Nicholas Ridley, who described a common European monetary policy, quote, as a German, rather, German racket designed to take over the whole of Europe. The European Commission, he went on, behaved with an arrogance I find breathtaking. I'm not against giving up sovereignty in principle, but not of this lot. You might just as well give it to Adolf Hitler, frankly. <laughs> Contrary to what the interviewer, and at a bubble, his magazine's cartoonist, uh, whose drawing of coal with a hip moustache probably caused more offence in Germany than the minister's words. It was actually lampooning. Uh, the, uh, contrary to what they concluded, Ridley was not actually comparing Helmut Kohl to Adolf Hitler. But the effect was much the same when Ridley went on to declare that the Germans were already running most of the con- community and being bossed by a German it would cause absolute mayhem in this country, and rightly, I think. Although and this gave rise, of course, to a, quite a major storm. There's another cartoon from the Express. <laughs> and this is another, another one, uh, combining, I think, the sort of beach, the beach story with the Cole Ridley story, upsetting um, Helmut Cole. However. Of course, um, no, no one doubted that Ridley's outburst have reflected much of what Mrs. Thatcher herself thought. These views did not represent mainstream Conservative Party thinking on Germany and Europe at this point in time. Ridley was forced to resign after his interview being formally repudiated by the government. And as the tone and temper of Mrs. Thatcher's anti-European remarks continued to intensify over subsequent months, 
an increasing number of Conservative MPs and ministers began to realise that her behaviour was making the conduct of British foreign policy impossible. She herself was ousted the following November. Mrs Thatcher's enforced resignation engendered an outburst of lacrimose patriotic despair from her most determined supporters in politics and the media. Thus, Peregrine Worthstorn of the Sunday Telegraph on the 25th of November 1990 lamented her departure from office because she had become, quote, the unique embodiment of British nationalism. Her loss was a disaster because, he said, from Britain's point of view, the real challenge comes from Europe, from, in particular, a united Germany. If Britain is going to be dominated by the economic power of united Germany in a federal Europe, let's lie back and enjoy it. That's now the conventional wisdom of the great and the good. Second to opportunism, it's defeatism that's beaten Thatcherism, defeatism about Britain's ability to remain an independent power. And that's why Worthstone continued. The great and the good wanted her out before the British people woke up to the danger posed to Britain by a united Europe dominated by Germany. And Mrs Thatcher's patriotism was a gut instinct, he said, and understood by ordinary people, but not by administrators, civil servants, pundits, the great mass of the political class. These were the people who saw a rational case for caving into Germany in 1940, he went on. The case for caving in seemed stronger to them 50 years later, he observed. The Germans today, he wrote, are certainly more economically nationalistic than ever. They are convinced that such is the productive power of German industry that a new Euro state would have a German body. Britain's thousand-year constitutional history would be brought to an end and democracy would be subjected to continental dirigism. Enthusiasm for Europe, he concluded, is the tip of an iceberg of defeatism. And the overthrow of Mrs Thatcher led, indeed, to a rapid growth of Euroscepticism or Europhobia amongst the outraged party rank and file, swollen by the influx of a new generation of Thatcherite MPs in the general election of 1992. The myth of the Second World War, if one can call it that, the looking back to the experience of the Second War, the rhetoric and language of the war played a powerful part in their thinking. The very title of Bill Cash's book, Against a Federal Europe, The Battle for Britain, published in 1991, suggested that the Battle of Britain, uh, the, it suggested a reminiscence of the Battle of Britain, a rerun of the Battle of Britain. Cash left his readers in no doubt as to who the enemy was. Britain, he warned on page one, could become a mere province in a Europe dominated by Germany. The German attitude to Europe is determined by a massive historical heritage. A federal Europe would be a greater Germany inheriting and perhaps magnifying the complexes and instabilities of post-Bismarckian <coughs> Germany. Such views are expressed perhaps in their most extreme form by the historian Andrew Roberts in a novel, thankfully his only novel, called The Aachen Memorandum, published in 1995, set in an imaginary future around the middle of the 21st century, when Britain has been incorporated into a federal European Union, the monarchy has been abolished, Trafalgar Squares, renamed Delors Square, mass carnage, mass carnage on the roads has been caused by the issuing of a European directive requiring British to drive on the right. Euro law is enforced by Gestapo-like police, German is the only foreign language taught in British schools. All this, as the book's hero inevitably called Horatio, reveals reflects the fact that the Germans pretty much run the Union and call it the Reich amongst themselves when they don't think anyone's listening. <laughs> Needless to say, Horatio leads a resistance movement that eventually destroys the hated rule of the continental foreigners. You can find a similar perspective, though less overheated perhaps, in the non-fiction writings of 
then young Tory historians like John Charmley and Neil Ferguson, who argued that Britain should have stayed out of the First or the Second World War because the huge expenditure of money these wars caused destroyed the British Empire, and yet the end result with the creation of the European Union was German domination of Europe anyway. But while Eurosceptic politicians and writers made the running and promoting the rhetoric of the Second World War in the 90s, it was not confined either to the Conservative Party and its supporters in the news media or to the issues raised by British membership of the European Union. Such rhetoric could be found all over the press on a variety of issues. It was the pro-European observer, for instance, that printed on the 26th of March 2000 an article declaring we have no reason to forgive or forget or embrace or completely to trust the Germans. It was the restaurant critic, subsequent TV critic of the Sunday Times, A.A. Gill, who in reporting on the 11th of July 2000 about a visit he'd paid to Germany, invited his readers to agree we all hate the Germans because of their stubborn arrogance, awful food. Most notoriously of all, it was the Labour-supporting mirror that issued a front-page declaration of football war on Germany on the occasion of the England-Germany match in the European Nations Cup in June 1996. Achtung, surrender for you, Fritz. The Euro 96 Championship is over. References to England's old enemy defeated in two world wars and one World Cup could be found in almost all the tabloids on the occasion of any England-Germany football match in the second half of the 90s, including club games. Cool Britannia versus the Master Races, which Little John put it in the sun on the 23rd of April 2000. A subsequent England-Germany match, not the only one, witnessed the spectacle of England fans chanting, stand up if you won the war, while the Wembley loudspeakers blared forth the Dambusters' march as an encouragement. Yet, back in 1982, this is a cartoon at the time, it shows an aged Hitler getting rather overexcited by an England-Germany football match. Back in 1982, however, just a decade before, the rhetoric of the Second World War was entirely absent from reports of the England-Germany match in the World Cup. There was generous coverage of brilliant individual players, such as Rummenigge and Schumacher, in sharp contrast to the 1996 reporting, which tended to contrast the passion of the English players with what the Mirror called the efficient play of the well-organised but almost entirely anonymous German robots, to use their word. Even in 1990, despite the appearance of a limited amount of language derived from the Second World War, the Sun was still prepared to run a two-page background spread on modern Germany in preparation for a match, given a positive account of the country's recent history under subheadings such as Great Future After the Fall of the Wall and Lots of Sausage. <laughs> German women, the Sun told its readers enthusiastically, have an average bus size of 38 inches and spend more on sexy silk underwear than women anywhere else in the world. It was not until the middle of the 1990s that the language of the Second World War came to enter the mainstream of British public discourse, making itself apparent in a whole variety of areas from the commentary written by the Observer's literary editor Robert McCrum on the takeover of Random House by the German media giant Bertelsmann to the welcome given by the Sun to the takeover of Rover by BMW because, quote, the more of Britain they own, the less likely they'll be to drop bombs on us. <laughs> or the cartoon image of Thomas Cook's travel agency been reorganised along Nazi lines when it was taken over by a German tour operator 
all this giving entirely new meaning to the phrase we shall fight on the beaches. And increasingly negative stereotyping. There's another one. Uh, the increasingly negative stereotyping of Germans in public discourse during the 1990s was paralleled by a dramatic change in public attitudes. Opinion polls show that the average score awarded to the Germans in respect of friendliness fell among British respondents from 12.7% in 1990 to minus 38.8% in 1994. An average of 26% agreed that Germany would be a nice place for them to work in 1990, but only 5% thought so five years later. 26% of British respondents regarded the Germans as Britain's best friend in 1987, but only 9% in 1992, when no fewer than 53 out of every 100 Britons considered Nazism could re-emerge in Germany, compared to 23% five years previously. And these figures are not to be found in any other Western European country. Nor were the young in any way less inclined to hold such views than the older generation who had personal experience of the war. When 800 10 to 16-year-old British schoolchildren were asked in 1996 what occurred to them when they heard the word Germany, 78% said the Second World War, and 50% Hitler, who was the only German most of them could name, apart from the football player Jürgen Klinsmann. The next highest score was beer, with 11%. 43% voted Germany the country they'd least like to visit, higher even, even than Bosnia in the second half of the 90s. That was quite something, 26%. Bosnia also came out in the school people's view as less boring and more prosperous than Germany, <laughs> which won more votes as the poorest country in Europe than any other. Well, how do we explain the growing tendency of the 90s to merge public discourse about Germany and the Germans with the language and imagery of Nazism in the Second World War? It's fundamentally, I hope I've demonstrated, actually something new. It's not a hangover from the Second World War. Well, clearly it's a consequence of wider influences simply than the rise of Euroscepticism and its domination of the Conservative Party in that period. Clearly, too, it's a new phenomenon. So it's, due to, it's about the refashioning of public memory. It's got nothing to do with private or individual memories. It's public memories. Private or individual memories of the war have been confined to a small and ever-diminishing segment of the oldest generation of Britain. So this is something of a rather different nature. In fact, it's remarkable, I think, that in many advanced industrial societies, there's been a kind of recovery of public memory of the Second World War, just at the moment when personal memories been fading away. This general recovery of memory, I think, must have something to do with the fall of the Soviet Union and the death of communism. Communism was a negative stereotype that cemented the hegemonic public ideologies of Western societies during the Cold War. And since the collapse of communism, and despite the rash of revelations about the true dimensions of its crimes, Western societies have had to reorient the negative pole of political evil, dictatorship and violence against which they measure the positive benefits of freedom and de democracy. Failing an image of sufficient power and danger in the present, they've fallen back on the potent imagery of Hitler and the Nazis. The negative image of the Blitzkrieg and the swastika came to the aid, I think, of a crisis in this period of English identity. As John Major's idealised image of weak tea and cricket on the village green proved insufficiently potent as a definition of Englishness in the face of the rise and partial triumph of nationalism in Scotland and Wales. 
public memory of the Second World War is at least in part a product of the growth of a certain kind of English nationalism in the 1990s. Fed, I think one has to say, by the continuing dumbing down of the London press in the competition for readers and its consequent recourse to easily recognisable, simple and incessantly repeated stereotypes. The language of the war lay easily to hand as it was resurrected by Mrs Thatcher and her government in 1982 for the Falklands War, then deployed in the miners' strike two years later against the enemy within and finally turned against Germany in the moment of reunification before being applied more generally to Europe and the European Union as a whole. And that's why I think the public memory of the Second World War in Britain, and specifically in England, has little to do with the image of the Holocaust as it does in the USA, another potent, extraordinary example of the recovery of the public memory with the Holocaust moving to the centre of American culture in the 90s, peaking perhaps with um, Spielberg's Schindler's List in 1993. In Britain, this public discourse about the war concentrates on the Germans as militaristic international aggressors and conquerors. Yet, uh, and that's the final one that's uh, during the election campaign, that's William Hayes, a kind of barrage, balloon, um, battle for Britain, fighting a campaign on the basis of Euroscepticism with a lot of rhetoric looking back to the war. Um, but already there, the cartoonists recognises the total boredom of the public, seeing at the bottom they've all fallen asleep um, with this particular topic. And so it proved the uh, fighting election campaigns on the Eurosceptic Euro ticket didn't do the Conservative Party any good at all. People simply didn't care. And I think this suggests maybe that where public memory can change so frequently and so rapidly, there's perhaps hope that it may change again this time in a more positive direction than it did at the end of the 1980s. Otherwise, I think it'll continue to be a real setback to mutual understanding, to Britain's effectiveness in bilateral relations with Germany, and more generally within the European Union. Whether or not this will happen, if a new, strongly Eurosceptic Conservative government comes to power on May the 6th, or whether the emergence of Islamist terrorists has softened anti-Germanism by providing a potent alternative negative stereotype, against which the English can identify themselves and their political culture remains to be seen. Certainly, I think there's some evidence that if the negative English stereotyping of Germany and the Germans reached its absolute post-war height between 1989 and 2001, it's been in decline since then. The reason for this in itself, welcome development, are, however, I think, a subject essentially for another discussion, or perhaps for questions. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for a wonderful lecture and, uh, yeah, wonderful, <laughs> uh, wonderfully provocative um, pictures as well. And I think it's, it's really interesting um, that I don't think you could have given that lecture the, the other way around uh, German pictures of, uh, of Britain or of, of any other uh, of any other European country and I, I just wanted to open up the discussion with the question of course it's a critical and uh, not always terribly uh, productive way of reporting about other countries but some of these things are simply funny and how much does the element or the fact that the British press 
needs to entertain in a completely different way than the German press sort of uh, evoke a certain um, yeah proneness to 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 this sort of caricature <coughs> and and stereotypes. So you think the Sun is very different from Bildzeitung then? Um, I think the popular press... The, the, the Sun has, has other caricatures than the Bill's... Yeah, <laughs> sure, because they're different countries. I mean, I, th- I do think you know, the, the popular press is a phenomenon in many different countries, mm. including Germany, but um, I think you're, you're right if you're suggesting that, of course, the cutthroat competition between mm. the popular tabloid press in this country is, um, is a factor, I think, in, in yeah. building up this need for people to get excited and uh, stereotypes that they can easily recognise. Yeah, because I don't see it in any in that way in any other uh, European mm. country in, in, in the press. But anyway, yeah. Wait. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much, Richard. The Second World War. Wait for the mic, please. Sorry. So everybody can hear. The Second World War. I think it is more paradoxical than that. That those people who were most directly involved in the fighting, and I think in particular of these people who were involved in the invasion of Normandy and then on for Normandy, that generation of people, the Peter Carringtons, the Robert Ronsies, the Willie Whitelaws, and so on, just because the fighting was so hard in Normandy, they tended, and Edward Heath, of course, they tended to draw the same conclusions as their contemporaries did in Germany. In other words, they were very against war in the future, uh, and uh, many of them also were in favour of Europe for that reason. So I think that's some, and of course these people have, these people have now uh, disappeared. I mean, whereas <coughs> the, when you were talking about the way we dwell on the war, a, a lot of it is really, is the evocation of the home front, isn't it? And the heroic, did, well, Dunkirk leading on to the home front. Uh, and of course, uh, Mrs. Thatcher clearly didn't uh, participate in the Second World War in the way that her conservative uh, contemporaries did. So I, I've always felt that was part of it. The, the second thing that I wanted to say quickly, and this is just an indication of how complex these things are, you know, if you look at the rover controversy, the interesting thing was if you uh, asked people on the uh, production line at Longbridge, who did they want to take over? 99% said Volkswagen. They wanted a good German company to take over, and BMW had no difficulty in securing uh, the best workers from Longbridge uh, to work mm. at Ham Hall. So these, I, I, think, I think it's all really quite complicated. The last thing I want to say is, of course, you and uh, I represent a generation of people, and that's what you talked about so eloquently in your book, Cosmopolitan Islanders, who found Germany incredibly attractive in the 60s and 70s. We were enthused by the country, by its literature, and that went much wider than people who then devoted their life to Germany, because the students, everybody read Grass and so everybody I knew, and uh, I think for a long time uh, we had some impact in the universities. The problem is that this is entirely an elite matter. Mm. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, well, that's a um, really <laughs> interesting um, comments, Willie. Thank, thanks very much. Of course, interestingly, um, that goes back to the 
the, the feeling, I think, that most uh, British men who fought in the war had the feeling that the Germans fought fairly and that this is a kind of clash between two military traditions. Whereas, of course, if you look at British uh, soldiers, old soldiers' attitudes towards the Japanese, you find a completely different uh, set of attitudes, a real continuing bitterness uh, and, and, and hatred many, many decades afterwards. Yes, please. <coughs> Thank you very much. Um, my name is Peter Torrey. I, I was Paul Lieber's successor as ambassador in Berlin. So it's fallen to me to give a number of these talks. And may I start by congratulating you for what I thought was an absolutely first class um, uh, tour de raison. But I think you were right to put it as a historian, very much in a historical context, because my impression is that the disputes of 89 to 2001, I think you, you put it, um, uh, were disputes of that period and, and, and no, longer, uh, no longer relevant to, to the perceptions that we have of each other today. Admittedly, I was ambassador in Germany in 2003 when those attacks uh, took place on students, and I did make some public comments which were picked up by the, by the press. And uh, the Daily Telegraph wrote uh, a story about this. And believe it or not, there was a wonderful letter from uh, Buddy Salterton saying, clearly our ambassador in Berlin has been abroad far too long, because if he would come to Buddy Salterton, he would know it's not Germans we dislike, it is all foreigners we dislike. <laughs> and you said at the end that um, you would leave post-2001 to a, 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 another discussion, which I think is a pity, because I feel that um, the World Cup in Germany in 2006 did an enormous amount for British perception of Germany as a modern, dynamic, interesting place to go. And um, uh, I look forward to your, your second discussion. But uh, my main point is, I think that this is what we're having today is a historical discussion, and the perceptions today no longer reflect that very difficult period between uh, uh, 1889 to 2001. Yes, one. Yes, yes, yeah. Richard, thank you very much. Um, I just thought that there were two other anecdotes to do with um, Charles Poe, that both coming from him, um, and I'd be interested in your comments on them. Um, one which I think is definitely true, which was that when Mrs. Thatcher got back into the aeroplane after seeing Helmut Kohl or whatever, she sat down and sighed very, very heavily and said, couldn't really express herself and said, that man, that man, he's just so German. Um, the other one, of course, was the whole question of um, unification. Um, and I don't know to what degree you've heard this or whether it's um, true, but one um, apparently uh, uh, Mitterrand rang uh, Mrs. Thatcher uh, to say, you must get hold of Gorbachev to stop unification. He's the only person who can do it, and you're the only person who's got the clout with him. And she was sort of slightly taken aback. Uh, and she said, but Francois, I, I really don't know what to say on this particular one. I was discussing with my people. Um, and then literally a few hours later, um, she saw him standing on the steps of the Elysee saying how much he welcomed unification. And she apparently said, Francois, you snake at the television when she heard it. But anyway, I just thought a couple more to um, add to your collection. Yeah. Well, yes, uh, Mitterrand is the whole object of study in himself, I guess. Yes. 
Romanian Lionel Koplovich and the senior class president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Well, in, in February 1990, um, I had arranged for Mrs. Thatcher to address a public meeting of the board on the third Sunday of February, and that it was fully, what she said was fully reported on all the major dailies on the, on the Monday morning, because the whole of her address was devoted to the whole question of the reunification of Germany. It's all she spoke about in February 1990. And I don't know what she expected from it, but it certainly throughout the Jewish community, there wasn't a, a wave of sort of, uh, of great support for it. It was noted, if you like, but it didn't resound, it didn't create a, a wave of anti-German feeling at all. I think that the reason of that being really that whilst the Jewish community in Britain had reeled terribly after the first world, after the Second World War because of the Holocaust, nevertheless, after the conference of Jewish material came against Germany being established, and the fact that the Federal Republic had fully met all its commitments in that regard and continued to do so, and did so even more after the unification in respect of restitution to those in the East, that uh, it's, um, uh, I think that these are probably the government reasons why it didn't in any way cause a ripple of anti-German feelings throughout the Jewish world. I was really interested by this idea, your, your argument that um, that these negative perceptions of Germany weren't something that were very present immediately after the war, but there was a sort of recovery of memory, as you put it later on. Um, and as you were talking, I was thinking about this issue um, uh, that you touched on the end uh, about uh, the about whether the um, emergence of the Holocaust as a collective memory from the 60s onwards played into that. Um, and I wondered if you if you slightly uh, underplayed that when you suggested that it was very different from in the in the US. Um, it made me think, for example, of the way that even Margaret Thatcher's uh, views of Germany were influenced by uh, her pen friend, her Jewish German pen friend that she had in the 30s. Um, and uh, that also, perhaps more importantly, that um, uh, just given the, the, the power of American culture, you mentioned, for example, Schindler's List as a sort of peak of this um, um, uh, kind of sense of um, the Holocaust as a collective memory in the US. I mean, British people would have seen Schindler's List too, and I just wondered whether um, uh, that um, must uh, have played, at least to some extent, alongside all these other factors, into um, these kind of growing uh, negative uh, perceptions of Germany. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I, mean, I wouldn't wish to dismiss it, of course, out of hand, but it is very striking how um, the, the rhetoric of anti-Germanism in the 90s is almost entirely focused on um, international conquests, International, you know, the German domination of Europe again, the the, the takeover of Britain, um, the, the the T-shirts you used to used to be able to see on sale in the 90s, where it said Germany, European tour, you know, Poland, Russia, and so on and so forth. Um, so I do think there's a difference in the, in in the balance. You don't find that in in America at all, uh, and of course in Britain, the Imperial War Museum built its Holocaust exhibition wing. Um, there's been a Holocaust Memorial Day. It's been set up, so it has. It does play an influence in British culture, but I think it's nearly not nearly as central as it is in American culture, where there's a Holocaust Memorial Museum or memorial in almost every 
uh, American city, where it does play a, 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 a role that Peter Novick, in a very interesting book, has tried to explore. Yeah. Uh, William Horsley, and I was the BBC correspondent in uh, Germany for much of the 90s, mm. and um, I'm a little bit concerned that the impression given by not just uh, your talk, but by the Q&A is uh, perhaps not fully representative of uh, the situation on, on both sides. Um, uh, I, I uh, wonder, I mean, I recall uh, that inside Germany there was a good deal of distress in the early 90s uh, about the course of things. A particular quote from Richard von Weizsäcker that the Germans in a speech in Berlin should uh, beware of the writing on the wall and that uh, speech was made after um, two years of persistent um, shows of xenophobia with uh, several shocking incidents, as you know, of Turkish families, but also many hundreds of arson attacks. I mean, it was the country was going through a very, very rocky period. And as far as the UK relationship was concerned, I mean, I, not only the Heart of Europe speech of John Major, but... The, uh, the, after all, the attempt to join the ERM was, was a very, it seems to me, rather significant attempt by the Thatcher government to, uh, to play ball with, with the new Europe. And, uh, I mean, it was very striking that um, within, uh, well, I think that after the very first uh, attempt to have all cabinet meetings between the British and German cabinets in the same way as the French, the whole thing had collapsed in ashes because of the withdrawal from the ERM and the bad blood. But, I, I find it hard to believe that that is entirely a one-sided thing, entirely uh, with uh, the fault on the on the British side. And uh, I mean, just anecdotally, um, working as a journalist inside uh, Germany for those years, uh, I can't say that I felt that the German um, the commentators, the commentariat, were uniformly warm or even fair necessarily towards Britain. There was a great sense of the two nations going in different directions over Europe in particular. And of course, we, you didn't have time. You didn't dwell on the German side of it. But I, I wonder if you'd, you'd, you'd like to uh, just say something about um, the German side of this equation, uh, and particularly German <coughs> attitudes to, to Britain, uh, which were, I agree, there was a great deal of aggression, so to speak, perceived aggression from Britain towards Germany. But there, there were also ways in which Germany was plowing a course which was quite deliberately against um, not just the Tory government. I, I'll give you one more quote from the then chief of the British Defence Staff, whom I think I interviewed in the, um, in the uh, Munich uh, Defence Conference, Security Conference in 1991, who spoke about the way in which negotiations led to the formation of the uh, Franco-German um, Defence Alliance, the, 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 Franco, the core and the uh, Euro core and so on, as a hole in the corner, he felt they felt um, betrayed. They felt that they were there's something going on that was not above board. So it was not by any means, um, I think, as uh, absolutely across the board uh, attitude or a, pre, a preconception. There was there was a dynamic. So perhaps you mm. say something about the dynamic. Yeah, uh, right. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I think you've raised a number of questions. Um, the first really is the sort of difference or the gap between rhetoric and reality. Um, because for all of the Eurosceptic 
uh, um, uh, an anti-European rhetoric in which the Conservative Party indulged through the, through the 90s, um, you have to ask you know, who, who negotiated and signed the Maastricht Treaty, um, who tried to join the ERM and so on. So there is a kind of, um, uh, there is a sort of difference there, I think, and in practical terms, at least in the early 1990s, I think the um, Conservative governments were, they were less, far less anti-European than the rhetoric might have um, led, us, led one to believe. I do think the major change came around about the mid-1990s, uh, when you get a, a much more strident kind of uh, Euroscepticism in, in, in the Tory party until they decide to fight an election on the issue. Um, I think the issue of violent incidents involving immigrants, and, and it is anti-immigrant uh, violence really that's at the core of it, that has, I think, relatively little to do with national self-images and a whole bundle of other things. But if you actually look at the statistics of violent anti-immigrant uh, uh, incidents, you'll find there are more at that time in Britain than there were in Germany. The German ones got reported um, because, partly because one or two of them were very sensational, um, but largely because there is an international media sensitivity to that kind of thing when it happens in Germany that you don't find when, it's, when it happens in Britain. Um, I think the, 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 the German, it's come to sort of the main point uh, of your question, um, the, what I suggested at the beginning was that the German reaction to the, this perception of the reality, in fact, of anti-German rhetoric suddenly welling up in the British media and British culture was to mobilise a whole series of anti-stereotypes, of the British being old-fashioned, stuck in their memories, stuck in the past. And there's, there's a sort of a discourse in Germany of Brit about Germany being the modern go-ahead country, Britain lagging behind, and British stagnation, British decline, and so on, which I think was, a, was part of quite a widespread reaction to this in, in Germany. So there, there, are, there were two sides to the argument, as it were, parts of a dialogue of the deaf, you might say. Um, uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Greg Hans, a uh, Conservative MP. Um, and I'm going to yeah. depart slightly from your, uh, what you're saying about the Conservative Party. Mm. That's actually not what my question is going to be. And I depart from you in, if you like, coupling the rise of Euroscepticism in the Conservative Party with um, the rise of apparent anti-German feeling during the 1990s, because I think the two things really are entirely separate. Um, I think to characterize someone like Bill Cash as being somebody who's a Germanophobe, I think is, is fundamentally unfair. I think uh, people who know him well will say his objections to the European Union are based more on the uh, Constitution, uh, the law, uh, and on politics. I know you, you, you picked out that one quote uh, from his book, um, and that's what I think is still the case, actually, in conservative uh, Euroscepticism. And probably nobody is more of a, a Europhile in terms of liking Europeans uh, than someone like Bill. So I think it's unfair to couple that uh, together with the pictures from the, the mirror of Stuart Pearce and uh, Paul Gascoigne uh, in their World War I helmets. Um, but I do agree with you about the decline since about 2001 in popular anti-German feeling, if you like, for want of a better description. Um, but I'm slightly worried about the future um, for two reasons. First of all, We've seen a big flow in young Germans coming to Britain, to my constituency, in particular Hammersmith and Fulham. Uh, my German population is, I think, 3 or 4% of my total electorate. And most of them have been coming due to economic opportunities and the opportunity to uh, live in a relatively low tax environment and opportunities in British higher education and so on. And it worries me slightly that that is going to be reversed 
um, if the British uh, economic decline uh, were to continue. And the second area, what impact you think there might be on the decline in British school children learning German? I think you touched on mm. the decline in the number of young British people um, going to Germany, which is presumably only going to increase as the number of people learning German in British schools is, is dwindling to a really tiny um, percentage. And whether you might be worried, like I am, um, that the experience people have of Germany at school um, is now no longer the German language and learning German, but it is entirely due to the fact that Nazism uh, is, is pretty much the only aspect of Germany that's on the national curriculum. And whether actually we might ironically be moving away from the, the situation of having a wider view of Germany to just focusing on the years 1933 to 1945, and that being the only impression our school children have. Right, yes. Well, uh, several interesting points there. I think um, there is, a, again, there's, when you look at um, anti-German rhetoric in, in conservative Euroscepticism, I think it's only a fairly brief phase, actually, that, that they're coupled. My impression now is that it's much more um, Brussels bureaucracy in a rather sort of anonymous sense. And that was a product of relatively, that, was, that rhetoric was used in a relatively small number of years in the late 90s and just to tipping into this century. Um, I think using that kind of rhetoric has got very little to do with personal attitudes to individual Germans or actual personal experience of, of, of Germans in the continent. Um, I, you know, it, it operates on a slightly different level. Rather, and I wouldn't want to draw this parallel in any other way, but rather as you know, anti-Semites uh, always have particular individual Jews who they like and it's nothing personal towards them. It's a general political factor they're talking about. Um, in terms of the decline of language learning in the schools, um, this is a serious development. It's not confined to German. I don't think it has anything to do with special attitudes towards German. You find the same with French. The only language, uh, European language, which is holding up is Spanish, uh, if you look at A-level entries, and that's because, of course, it's a world language um, for Latin America, not just, um, not just European. But I do think that the, the, the decay of language learning in the schools is something that's very serious. It is uh, creating a kind of um, insularity in, the, in British culture. I've, I've written about this in my book, Cosmopolitan Islanders. The fact that now um, my generation, Willie Patterson, is talking about uh, we all found it quite natural to learn foreign languages, but now younger, you can't, it's very difficult to get younger British historians now who actually speak and read foreign languages. Um, uh, and that, that is quite a, a serious thing. I think the policy of the, the present government in um, reducing, uh, you know, abolishing requirements to learn foreign languages in schools has been absolutely disastrous in this, in this respect. I think that deals with what you said. I mean, the, the, the flow of young Germans to London could that be reversed, and what would be the impact? Um, well, it's it, you know within the European Union, there's a free movement of labour, so they tend to come and go with the economic situation. So, um, I'm not quite sure what the economic situation in, in in your constituency is. Probably not as bad as it is somewhere in the north. <laughs> um, we find this with Poles. You know, with what is it, 600,000 Polish um, Polish people working in Britain. Uh, the numbers now really, really declined very sharply with the recession. So I think it's a, um, what, what, what you got and what back in the 80s and what uh, a TV series like Our Vida Saint Pet um, described was, of course, the reverse flow of Britain in the, the, you know, the, the de declining problem-ridden British economy of the 70s and early 80s. Um, a lot of British brickies and others went to Germany, legally or otherwise. So it is economic. They're following economic.
questions. Hi there. Four more questions. Uh, Ambassador Baumgarten. I have a question to the social historian, because you were studying this social behavior, which may be a generality of everybody, in a historic perspective. How far do you think this is a normal behavior in all societies where you have a lack of mutual information? And how do you see this in the future, where this lack may be increasing because things become more complex? The competition between different narratives through the new media, internet, films, and so on, is really competing with the real world. We sometimes have, even in the families, the problem that the youngsters sometimes live in a different world because uh, they are not confronted enough with reality. And, uh, so what is common in all of this and what is specifically British? And just a suggestion particularly to what Greg just said. When I heard that uh, Liam Fox in one speech was talking of uh, taking the Rhine army back, I was thinking what would be the effect because the Rhine army, I think, is one of the greatest sympathy bearers of Britain in Germany. And uh, it is one of the big contact points where many, many friendships, even quite a lot of marriages were uh, concluded. <laughs> and uh, so uh, my conclusion would be, if this takes place only in case of, take 10% of that and put it in programs for bringing people together. Uh, thanks. Uh, I mean, I, that raises a, a very interesting question because, of course, these stereotypes exist in a kind of um, sphere of, of uh, discourse and culture which has very little to do with reality. And indeed, right through the 90s the, um, and, and right through all this entire period, uh, all of this media um, stereotyping had actually relatively little to do with the real politics of Anglo-German relations, which continued to be quite close and very friendly and so on. And it's part of the reason for the puzzlement that you find politicians um, uh, expressing when, when this happens. I think the uh, very fast, massive growth of the internet um, may well have, it may be a factor in actually reducing these stereotypes because they exist in the same kind of unreal sphere. The globalization may, may, may actually have, effect, have that kind of effect. It's difficult, difficult to say. I mean, ultimately, I think the attempts that were made in the 90s of earnest, uh, earnest conferences of academics uh, writing articles and giving talks about the stereotyping and images, um, the, uh, the, the book, little book by Thomas Keelinger, uh, all of those were doomed to failure because what's driving this whole process has got very little to do with any kind of reality. It's got to do with other factors. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Tony Nichols. Um, first of all, I, if I may just comment on the very last, the last very interesting uh, interjection. I think uh, you needn't worry too much about the withdrawal of the Rhine army. This has been threatened by successive British governments uh, when they wanted more money out of Germans. And the trouble was that uh, whenever it was examined, it was realized that if you did uh, repatriate the Rhine army, 
it was going to cost an awful lot of money <laughs> because they didn't have any, enough uh, barracks to house them. And therefore, either you were going to have to spend a great deal of money or else you were going to have to just ban that section of the army, which, of course, would weaken uh, uh, defensive capability, which was, in any case, these people were actually defending Britain at the front line, as well as anybody else. And the other thing is uh, that I can't see it. Uh, a drastic reduction in the in the British Armed Forces being terribly popular with the Conservative Party. So I just uh, <laughs> throw that in. Now, the other the other question that uh, very much interested me was this idea of a German hegemony <coughs> in Europe. Now it's quite obvious that this was nonsense uh, if you looked at the uh, demographics apart from anything else. I mean the fact was the Germans were in a minority in the European uh, community, and as the community grew, it got into more of a minority. Uh, but it, uh, <coughs> it was all obviously about the economy, really. There was this idea that Germany was a sort of economic superpower, almost. Um, and I think that has something to do with the uh, disillusionment, or not the disillusionment, the disappointment that some conservatives had, and Mrs. Thatcher, I think, in particular, at the end of the 80s, because there was a setback. Uh, there, there was the 1987 crash, which affected Britain pretty badly, and then went on. Britain went on being this kind of recession for several years. Um, and this, I think, sort of, sort of stung her, and uh, she felt that somehow the Germans were responsible for this. And in fact, she specifically said that they they were using sort of protectionist measures and so forth in an unfair way. And this is one of the reasons why she was so determined to implement the um, Single European Act and all the rest of it. So that kind of, um, well, you might say envy or resentment, and it is quite an important factor. And it it re was reflected back in Germany at a time in the early uh, 20th and 21st century when there were British triumphalists saying, you know, we've had the Thatcher reforms and you haven't. So uh, it, I think this, it, there is that undercurrent of uh, what you call it, envy or resentment. Yes, I mean, what's interesting is how the sort of general admiration for Germany in the 70s, you know, if we do like the Germans, we'll solve the British disease, flips over into that kind of attitude. Well, thank you very much, Professor. My name is Alexander Landia. It was very interesting, your lecture. And I would like to come back to your economic argument. Um, and you made the argument about Eurosceptics and, uh, well, people speaking out against, against Eugism, etc., which was absolutely a very valid argument from my point of view. But the times have changed. And Margaret Thatcher was, uh, I have great admiration for her. She was a libertarian, well, admirer of Friedrich Hayek, who, well, was uh, watching uh, the, the costs and, and, and cutting spending and, uh, well, trying to watch the national debt, etc., etc. Now the picture is completely different. Uh, well, all the governments worldwide are trying to spend as much as they can to increase their debt and not care at all about costs. And uh, I think Germany is uh, a good example of a country, probably one of the very few countries, where, in fact, a 
um, Schwinden Bremse, which is the, the uh, stop for indebtedness, national indebtedness, were introduced by the Parliament. And uh, there's a much debate about the costs of uh, the anti-crisis programs, etc., etc. So, uh, do these economic concepts have relevance to this debate? Or is that just such a stereotypical thinking which is, in fact, uh, not affected by those more subtle differentiations? Probably the latter, I guess. I mean, that's a very interesting point, how our whole attitudes towards these issues, like um, economic controls, controls of the banks and so on, even taking over banks by the state, all of that has changed completely um, from after the credit crunch. But I don't see um, any kind of, that having any kind of broader effect on attitudes towards or discourses about Germany. Well, I've just been given a sign that we have overspent our time with the question and answers and... Um, uh, should proceed to the next stage of the evening. So if I'm, I'm afraid I have had to leave a couple of uh, questions out, but I would like to thank Richard Evans again very much. I think it was, again, an example where you come from uh, small pieces or, of sources to very wide questions, and we have, uh, in half an hour now, uh, sort of covered a vast round of Anglo-British relations after the war, uh, thank you ever so much again for coming, talking to us, and for the questions and answers. And uh, well, I hand over to Ambassador Baumgarten. Uh, not without. Only to say thank you and uh, ask you to move into the other rooms because food and drinks are there, and I'm. Sure, debate goes on there. <laughs>